afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Simon Pound and Alexia Russell this afternoon. First up on the programme, medical specialists in the Bay of Plenty have warned some people were choosing to go into palliative care rather than go through the huge difficulties needed to access dialysis. A letter to the then Bay of Plenty District Health Board in December outlined fears from doctors about delays to planned care. It said that patients had to make a nine-hour round trip to Hamilton three times a week for dialysis. Tefata Order says the letter highlighted why the system needs to change. With us is Wayne Naylor, the CEO of Hospice NZ. Wayne, kia ora. Hi, and well, nice to meet you. Uh, great to have you on. This is quite an extraordinary letter. We've got to have, have it right here with us. Very upsetting, but this letter is the r- reality of uh, what is happening on the ground. Yeah, I guess it's a, a symptom of just how bad our health system has become that people who should be able to access an essential uh, life-prolonging service are choosing to forego that and instead choosing the prospect, uh, in the case of renal failure, a fairly quick death. Yeah, what are we seeing here? Patients uh, are being diagnosed with bowel cancer, uh, having been on our waiting list for months longer than the recommended times, and this is leading to palliative rather than curative uh, treatments. You've got orthopaedics. Uh, thresholds to be waitlisted for a joint replacement are significantly higher in Bay of Plenty compared to main centres. But what about that access to good palliative care, Wayne? Yeah, so I guess like the rest of the health system, um, hospice um, who provide community palliative care have been chronically underfunded for a very long time. Um, and the pandemic over the last years has highlighted just how fragile their reliance on community giving really is. Um, and we know because of the funding situation that hospice care is not available to everyone in New Zealand in the same way. Uh, a lot of people miss out on hospice care. And I'd be really concerned that people in the Bay of Plenty who are not getting hospital care, choosing palliative care, and then again not being able to access palliative care because it's just not available because it's underfunded. The other thing, we'll have got some panellists with us as well, Wayne, but the other thing that I really, really highlights is that notion, uh, I guess, of uh, what has been termed a postcode lottery, that mm-hmm. you live in a particular area and you don't get access to good care. No, that's the state of our health system. Again, I'm from the west coast of the South Island and I can tell you that the health services available there are just not anywhere near. Like I live in Wellington now and you get everything you want here, but on the west coast, Eastern Bay of Plenty, you know, you're, you're, you're out of luck in a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, Alexia, how do you see this uh, issue? What's your thoughts? Uh, well, this is um, far too close to me at the moment. I've just come from the Mercy Hospice in College Hill, um, <clears throat> seeing a dear friend, and she um, she she wanted to be where she was because the hospice people were absolutely amazing. She wanted to be in that room, and the care that she got and the attention that she is getting and the wonderful, wonderful people there... Um, and you literally can't buy it, and I'm definitely a convert to the whole hospice system, and people should give to it if they can, and I don't really think I can say much more. Oh. Oh. Kia ora, Alexia. Yeah, Wayne? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really sad to hear that, Alexa. Um, I'm really glad to hear that your friend is in a really great hospice. Um, but our concern remains that the people just can't access it. We have uh, hospices struggling with um, raising money at the moment. They're at a plateau level of asking community. And last year they asked the community for nearly $87 million, which is a huge ask for um, people across New Zealand. Uh, and it, it just shouldn't be that way. And it's essential health service should be treated the same way as maternity care. Everyone expects that when a baby is born, there's a midwife, there's an obstetrician, there's a team ready to help, um, there's community workers to go and support the new parent. It's just not the same if you're dying. So why should it be the same at the other end of your life? It's just extraordinary, Simon, will bring you on. So it's just absolutely extraordinary. It's, it would be extraordinary to our listeners, Wayne, to think that good palliative care is so hard to come by. It's actually easier, as you mentioned, to access assisted dying. Yeah, I, I guess it, it may be going to an extreme, but if a person, for example, can't access dialysis, then they find they can't access hospice care because it's not provided in their community or the services are very small, but they can choose a fully funded assisted dying service that's available to anyone anywhere in the country because travel, even accommodation, is paid for for that service, but that's not the same for hospice care. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? And there are a couple of like really key equity issues in this where, you know, the fact that ambulance services are oral uh, tooth care and, you know, something as essential to life as hospice are not looked after. But if you are wealthy, you can find a way to, to, to smooth that over. But if not, so it's a, it's a tremendous equity issue. Do you think that there's an element with hospice of it being something that, people find it hard to kind of want to face up to, that that's absolutely something that everyone's going to be engaging with? Uh, it really is. Our society, especially Western cultures, don't like to talk about death and dying. And a part of the history of hospices was that the medical fraternity didn't like to deal with death and dying, so it wasn't dealt with, and that's when hospices started to look after these people who are on the fringes of health care who were dying but who needed um, physical care, they needed spiritual, social and emotional care. That's where hospices started and they've kind of remained on the fringes but actually they need to be part of our essential health care services that anyone can access when they need it and where they need it. In terms of, uh, you know, uh, looking for answers, looking for solutions, we know this is a huge issue across uh, health, as you know, Wayne. Um, what, 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 what gives you hope, I guess, if anything? Um, I mean, I really hope that the health reforms bring about the, the really much-needed changes to our health system, but there just seems a huge amount that needs to change Um to certainly to address our equity issues around who can get good health care uh, and what their outcomes are. So uh, we have had this history of saying, well, here's a health service, come and get it. But we know that people just don't do that. Māori people, people, um, Pacifica people, low socioeconomic communities, they don't know how to get the things that they need. And that's just got to change. The funding's got to change. Our workforce is desperate 
Um, so it just seems a lot that needs to be fixed. Uh, there's a huge opportunity right now for the health reformers to do that if it's done properly and if it's led in the right way. Because that was the issue, wasn't it, Alexia, that um, uh, the, 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 the large sort of um, bringing together the DHBs under a sort of a, a bigger umbrella, Health NZ, it was, this was the very reason that it was um, brokered, right, to sort of help fix some of these uh, inequities. So yeah. they'll be wanting it to be more than just um, a banner only yeah. over time. Yeah, well, the, the problem... Obviously, with New Zealanders, that we have main centres where the main population is concentrated, very heavily concentrated, right. and it makes economic sense to deliver the services to those places. You know, really, in a, at a little centre on, as you say, the West Coast, it doesn't actually make sense to have a fully staffed hospice unit there when it might be catering to, and I don't know the numbers, but, yeah. you know, one person a month. That it's essentially, it's uneconomic and it's unfortunate and it's a side effect of living in a sparsely populated area and there's nothing that's going to change that because no one's going to fund a you know the hospice units take some really professional staffing and you know a lot of work to run even if there's only one patient but look at southland and look at the issues they've had to deal with regarding their uh their their their, their cancer treatments you know people have a right don't they they do have a right but i'm wondering if there is some way of changing the system so that i mean my friend if she were not in hospice, would be knocking on the door of Auckland Hospital's emergency department every second day, and it would have to admit her. And that place is heaving. Um, You know, it is really, really unpleasant, and it's just not best health practice. So is there some way that you can, you know, hospice can say to the government, we are taking your burden from you, you know. We deserve some of that vote health, and you need to look at a more equitable way of sharing out the money. Final comment, Wayne? So that, that type of work has been done in America and Australia and it shows that good palliative care, which is what hospices do, saves the health system millions of dollars. And so ideally we'd like to see that study done in New Zealand, but we can say that we literally keep people out of hospital and out of ED, so it does save millions of dollars and bed days for our public health system. Very nice to have you on the program, Wayne. Kia ora. Thank you very much for your Thank time. You yeah, that is okay. Wayne Naylor, the CEO of uh, Hospice uh, NZ. Uh, quite a letter that was uh, written uh, end of last year just regarding the lack of resources in planned care in the Bay of Plenty. Um, 18 past four, the panel, RNZ National. Now, last week we talked about how many are now turning to online apps for their mental health. In fact, last year there was a 6,500% increase in doctors recommending mental health apps to patients. Some of those apps include All Right, Happify, Headspace, which offers guided meditation sounding A little something like this. So sitting comfortably, just beginning with a nice big deep breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. Well, Alexia's looking relaxed after that. Senior lecturer in public health uh, at the University of Canterbury, Karen Matthias, said on our show, while no one disputes there is a place for apps, the question must be asked whether they are a replacement for real connection and, well, real people. With us uh, is Anna Alders, who has been a clinician for 20 years, a cognitive behaviour therapist, and is now clinical lead for Just a Thought, one of our country's main digital mental health organisations. Anna, kia ora, good to have you on. 
Kia ora. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and you got in touch with us about this. You heard, uh, Karen, a huge growth, isn't there, in what's termed e-mental health care. And we had quite a bit of response from our listeners saying, well, actually, I use a mental health ta- health app and I'm getting benefit from it. What's your view on this? Um, I, uh, firstly, I just want to um, really support everything that Karen said the other day. She's a, she's very astute with what she's coming and she's got a lot of messages that really we all need to be thinking about in the health space. Um, we have got a huge growth and I think what we have to really look at doing um, is having some consideration of what we're growing. So we know that there are individual startups with wonderful people um, at, at times with lived experience of mental health challenges that are jumping into the tech space and trying to produce solutions. Then we have other companies that are slightly perhaps a bit more commercial that are looking for more the employee wellbeing space or going overseas. Um, and then we have teams of clinicians and researchers and people that have long worked in the mental health system, know inside and out the challenges of access, know treatments inside and out that are delivering and developing mental health treatments. So when we think about these um, solutions, we really have to get a, a head on the different types and uh, functions of what's being developed out there. And how many, goodness, but I had no idea there were so many. I bought this at shop as well. 33 mental health apps listed on Aotearoa's Health Navigator site. So how can we best choose the mental health app for us, Anna? Mm. So we, if we think about it first, it depends on who's choosing and what part of their journey or what level of struggle they're having. Yeah. So during COVID, we stood up a lot of pools that were there for people who may not be struggling significantly day-to-day with their mental health. There may be more stress that was related to financial challenges or COVID or lockdown. And those guys, we needed to provide preventative solutions. So they would have had lower levels of mental health challenges, not necessarily disorders. And then we've got the um, uh, people that have got long and more sort of chronically standing struggles with their mental health. So it really depends who we're talking about and we need to provide different options for all of those groups and we need to be able to help them to navigate, like you say, what is there, what should I be using and how do I know this is safe, effective, good use of my time, finances if I'm investing and we need to be supporting funders in the space to do the same. Yes, um, Alexia, I don't know if you've used I mean, I haven't uh, uh, used uh, a mental health app myself. Well, no, because I hate apps. And I'm one of those people who is just not going to use it. I mean, I, you know, I know people who use apps for their running and their breathing and yeah, their waking up everything. and their everything, you know. And I wouldn't know what to do with half the ones on my Come phone. Come on, there I'm, must be a couple of apps <coughs> on your phone that you use. I use the AT map because I'm saving the planet. That's about it. So it's a yeah. big no for you. Well, no, no, I'm not going to be the only person in yeah. this in this state, and I'm not elderly and you know computer confused. Um, yeah. But there's going to be a lot of people who, for whom, just hanging on to their phone and listening to the disembodied voice just doesn't do it for them. Mm. Sta- and look, sta- so this is where I'd love to talk about the higher end of what we're talking about, sort of digital mental health solutions or e-mental health solutions. So when we think about people that have got more struggle um, than perhaps day-to-day stress that they're trying to combat, people that have diagnosable sort of mental health conditions, they're often accessing services, they're going to GPs, they may be 
maybe um, getting in therapy or waiting for therapy. So when we think about those types of people, what we're looking at is creating effective solutions that blend in. So the important thing, and you've absolutely nailed it, Alexa, is that adherence to anything in human beings is terrible. We don't stick at diet changes. We don't stick at um, rehab programs with physios. We and we don't often stick at apps and solutions unless we have motivators and drivers and reminders. So the evidence shows that when it's blended in and it's people are following up within the health space to someone using a digital support, they are much more likely to be using Oh, that's it. interesting. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, before, we get to Simon, before we get to Simon, actually, a colleague in the newsroom was just talking about the issue of privacy concerns, you know. Uh, 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 are there any privacy concerns around these mental health apps? You know, uh, the, the gathering of your personal data, Anna. Mm. We have to assume that there can be unless there's otherwise really clear stipulated guidelines. And so in New Zealand, we uh, have an assessment tool that's coming in that's been developed with a whole bunch of people in the space, including service providers and consumers, that will look at safeguarding some of that. But certainly people need to be very wary around privacy and some of those, um, you know, smaller fine points around what's being used for data. Yeah, I have a wonderful response as a listener um, with the the afternoon catnaps using the Calm app. I use a guided meditation and the woman's voice puts me to sleep instantly. I use the seven-day guided meditation for anxiety over and over and um, it works for it works for me, Simon. Yeah, there's a big spectrum, isn't there, of apps to help with mental health from something like Calm or Headspace that are, you know, downloadable for everyone and they may have some fees associated, but it's more kind of meditation and, and, and habits through to, you know, things that are actually trying to help people, uh, you, you know, find the right help or give appropriate interventions when people are facing issues. And in the course of, you know, Business is Boring, the podcast I do, I've been able to interview a bunch of apps that are based in New Zealand. And we have this thriving scene with um, Groove, which is the one lots of people will know is associated with Sir John Kerwin, which is kind of a mental wellbeing platform um, delivered through workplaces. Channel, which is a great um, app that helps, especially in the healthcare and frontline workers who might be shift workers or not have regular office oh, spaces, yeah. have a place to kind of, um, yeah, be able to uh, channel what their feedback and how they're feeling into into help and better conditions. And then also um, Clearhead. And we've had Angela on the show, Dr. Angela Lim, uh, who's the lead there. And that's like a conversational app to help people um, find the right pathways to the help they need. So there's there's a great little scene here uh, around um, apps apps that that, that have a lot of rigour and science and quality as opposed to just kind of a guided kind of Do they, Anna? Absolutely. So in our tools, it is a slight step out from that. So just the thought of the digitised cognitive behavioural therapy tool. So I was a CBT therapist for 15 of my 20 years and the Justice Court delivers the same interventions that I would be doing, including the skills and information um, and all of those essential uh, change mechanisms that CBT delivers through a digitised format. And the awesome thing is it can be prescribed by a whole range of our healthcare workforce. So we've got peer support workers using it alongside people they're supporting. We've got um, clinical psychologists blending it into therapy. Uh, It's being used as a waitlist treatment for people that are waiting for face-to-face. So it really is that it's not either or, it's the and around digital. So we need to be looking at the complementary integration with our face-to-face, that beautiful human support. And really, like your previous um, 
person was talking about, geographically, we are not going to get the tailored services up and down the country. We can't grow our workforce to provide psychological interventions at the rate that we need it. So the only way we're going to be able to really do that is by leveraging technology. But we have to do it Very deeply good. and thoughtfully. Very yeah. nice to have you on the program, uh, and quite a bit of interest in this. So kia ora. Uh, that's... Um Anna Elders, who's now clinical lead for Just the Thought, one of our country's main digital mental health organisations. 27 past. Well, can I just actually uh, mention uh, a bit of a, a bit of a note and a bit of a surprise note for us? We have, uh, of course, our wonderful panel here, Alexia Russell and Simon Pound. But guess who is in the studio with us this afternoon? What a special treat to have the one and only... Susie Ferguson with us. Kia ora, Susie. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not having to get up really early anymore, yeah. so I'm great. Thanks. It's very nice to see you. And, and we you? had Simon Pound. You just came in. We had the, well, Simon Pound extolling the virtues mm. of your wonderful city. He was saying it was buzzing. What of Wellington. Yeah. It was buzzing <laughs> in the way that our right super city wasn't. And I just want to sort of uh, <laughs> get your take on that, actually, Susie. Oh. Is, it, is it going off as Simon Pound says, oh. or is it a wasteland? Oh, um, I think, to be fair, actually, there has been a fair amount of um, growth, is perhaps the yeah. word. But but maybe it's about the base that we're coming off Yeah, from a That's few years enough. back. That's I don't know. I mean, I think there are some great places, absolutely, to go out and, and um, eat and drink and, and be merry in Wellington. And um, when, you, when you came to Auckland, can I just mm. ask you a question, Susie? Did you find Auckland a city of road cones? Because that's there, what we're hearing, are, eh? There are quite a few around the place, <laughs> certainly up near RNZ. Um, yeah, there are a lot of cones, but yeah. I often walk around uh, Auckland, mainly because I can't fathom the public transport. So, um, you know, I'm quite happy to walk past the road cones. Good on you. Lovely to have you here. And by the way, Susie Ferguson sure is going to be uh, joining... Uh, our show and many other shows across the spectrum uh, yes. filling in when the time needs. Mm. Um, but of course, Beach Haven full of road cones, Alex. Yeah, it's mm. just it's just shocking over there. No, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, Twenty nine <laughs> past for the panel RNZ National. Uh, briefly to this, this came out in conversation in the staff room uh, whether or not you eat in bed. Uh, the person that sits next to me, no names, uh, said it's a common scenario for there to be sourdough and peanut butter of an evening in bed. It wasn't Susie, by the way. No, uh, although I am sitting it? next to you. The moment, but, but no, uh, we should make that very clear. So it wasn't it wasn't Susie who said this. I won't um, say who it is. Um, but um, the big discussion ensued: Is bed the place for a piece of toast? A Saturday morning Shrewsbury, or is this just bad home etiquette? And I thought, well, I know who'll have the answer to this. Alexia Russell will have the answer to it, and Simon Pound. They'll have no end of opinions on this. Um, so around the panel, um, eating well, in bed or no? No. My happy place actually is a cup of coffee brought to me by my husband in bed in the morning. So why not? Why not eat it? Why, why not a piece of toast? Oh, because I don't know. I feel like I would rather sit up at the table to eat. Um, yeah, also, a, a rare agreement. Yeah. Well, I had a rare agreement. I completely I mean, agree I with you. I mean, I live with a house full of boys who yeah. have never given me the traditional Mother's Day in bed business, which I'm quite pleased about. But I just think it's weird. I mean. Yeah, no. Okay, Simon, your loved one brings you a morning herbal infusion and a couple of marshmallow <laughs> puffs on a, on, a, on a plate in bed. You're between the sheets. What do you do? Do you say, I'm going to get up and go to the table or what? I reckon crumbs are no good in bed, but it's very enjoyable to <laughs> eat something in bed. You just got to like 
be tidy. Look after yourself, like all, all things in the bedroom. You know. Okay, right. That's, Perfect yeah. consideration. So, are you just saying a lot of, lot of consent? Are you, are you just saying to a lot of talking? Just relax. A lot of talking. A lot of communication. A lot of talking. A lot of consent. Yeah. All right. So that's yeah. a yes. Can I get your hot take on this, Susie? Well, we had this. It prompted quite the discussion, didn't it, in the yeah. office? Um, I wonder. I wonder if Alexia is sort of bearing out our theory, which was that <laughs> liquid was okay. Yeah. But that food was a slippery slope. <laughs> so Sometimes liquids of any literally. kind was okay to eat, to have in bed, yeah. tea, coffee, champagne, That's the it. like. Mm. Yeah. But once you start getting into anything that can provide crumbs. That's mm. problematic. Yeah, is, is it a sweet, savoury divide? So you can have an M&M, but you can't have a uh, croissant. Well, I just absolutely hate it, uh, eating a bed. I'm just going to put it, put it right there. I think it's disgusting. Um, uh, it, it's just like, it's a ridiculous habit. And my wife is on board 100%. We do not we have eat tables in bed. We absolutely have dining, And we don't even eat in the living room. How about that? It's dining tables or nothing. Um, a Shrewsbury in bed is a, a, a disgrace. There you have it.